Welcome to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Kasperson. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me back. I am Kelly Kasperson. I'm going to talk to you today about my favorite, one of my favorite topics, sex and menopause, because there's so many myths about menopause just destroying sex lives, and it is what it is, and it's hopeless. And I'm here to tell you it's not. I'm here to, I'm here to say taking care of your menopause symptoms and taking care of your relationship are important, but menopause in and of itself does not have to end your intimate life. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to share my screen and we're going to talk about sex and menopause today. So how did I get, I got into menopause. I'm actually NAM certified now, North American Menopause Society, certified practitioner. First time I ever put any initials after my MD. So now I'm MD comma NCMP, National Certified Menopause Practitioner, something like that. I don't know. I haven't had to write it out yet, but apparently that's what I get to be now. So I got interested in menopause because I got interested in female sexual health, right? And it was like this huge elephant in the room of like, is is menopause affecting sex lives? Why is it affecting sex lives? And I'm going to answer both of those for you today. Um, what can we do about that? How do we treat horm- uh, men- how do we treat menopause? Are hormones safe? What's with the Women's Health Initiative in 2002? Why does why is everybody scared of estrogen? So I just got super curious about it. Went down the rabbit hole of menopause. Decided to get menopause certified to like put some legitimacy behind all of my research and me talking on podcasts and giving lectures. So now I'm nationally menopause certified practitioner uh, and I do hormones in my clinic with some the help of some PA so I can still be a urologist um, and that is why I'm here today. So tears led the way. I got into sex medicine. If you haven't heard my story yet because of a beautiful patient of mine crying in my office who was in a long-term married relationship, had no desire, didn't want to have sex with her husband and felt irreparably broken. And because of her, I again went down the rabbit hole first of female sexual function which then led me into menopause and it's my job and passion now to not hold all this information inside because I cannot help anybody if I just know the information myself, except for myself. And then seeing patients in clinic is not enough because I just practice from Washington State and there are millions and millions and billions of women out there. So I also don't really have a problem talking about awkward things. Like I can talk about sex like the weather and it doesn't really register that that that's a problem. Um, I don't know, thanks to my upbringing or thanks to my curiosity. So after all this, that's why I love doing this. So stages of menopause, we have pre-menopause, which the researchers say is anything before perimenopause, which the researchers say is within 10 years of menopause. You don't know when you're in perimenopause because you don't know when menopause is. And menopause, perimenopause is defined by the time around menopause. You don't see it coming. But menopause, the start date of menopause is 12 months of not having a period. That's a problem because a lot of people have hysterectomies, endometrial ablations, IUDs. You don't really know when your periods stop for a lot of women, right? So it's actually uh, kind of the rare woman who actually knows naturally when she's going into menopause. To help you out, average age of menopause in the United States of America is 51. So with it up to 10 years before that, you're in perimenopause. This is very important. Because if you're going to hit menopause before 51, which 50% of people are, it's very possible that you're in perimenopause in your late 30s. So we're just ignoring all these 40-year-olds with symptoms. I digress. So 
then you have postmenopause and life after that. Menopause is not a disease. Menopause is a natural condition that happens to every woman if you live long enough. It is not a problem, but, but the effects of low estrogen on the body causes disease. So I want to be very careful because people are getting very passionate and very shoddy about menopause, whether they should treat something that's natural or not. Tooth decay is natural, bad eyesight's natural, dry eyes are natural, and breaking your foot's natural, and we treat all of those things. So I don't fully buy, like, let's not treat these women who are suffering because it's natural, because we treat many natural. We treat pain with childbirth, that's natural. So I get, it, it's fun to jump on all of our preconceived notions of what we should or should not do with this time of our life. Stop shooting all over menopause. That'll be my follow-up book. <laughs> so menopause, common symptoms, mood swings, hot flashes, depression, anxiety, vaginal dryness, difficulty sleeping, night sweats, weight gain, and bone loss. I would argue you can't feel bone loss. So even if you quote unquote sailed through menopause without any symptoms, you are experiencing 2% uh, decreased bone strength every single year. Biggest, uh, biggest section of bone loss is in early menopause, the first 10 years, um, because estrogen really helps our bones stay strong. So what do we think of the, the hot flashes are? We don't fully know. We think it might be a cardiovascular thermal regulation response that is kind of misfiring. We have estrogen receptors everywhere. We have estrogen receptors in our gut. We have estrogen receptors in our ear. That's why we think vertigo gets worse after. Um, skin sensitivity gets worse. Inc new allergies, new skin sensitivities. Decreased libido can be a sign of menopause and your hormones going down. So redefining what we think about sex. Heteronormativity is the belief that heterosexuality is the default preferred or normal mode of sexual orientation. So our culture defines heterosexual sex as start with penetration of the vagina, ends with male ejaculation. This is not good. I'll talk in my penis owner talk that this is not good when we have erectile dysfunction, premature ejaculation, or Peyronie's disease. And it is not good for the female when we have pain with vaginal intercourse, dryness, what we call genital urinary syndrome of menopause, or the atrophy of our sexual tissues, which include the outer labia and the clitoris. So we need to redefine what intimacy is because if we limit it to just those organs and then we don't treat the dysfunctions that are common with age, we become asexual. Uh, we kind of fail because we don't have any other tools in our toolbox. So what's the problem? Um, a large bunch of menopausal women don't seek treatment. Uh, so a lot of people believe nothing can be done. A lot of people believe this shoulding on natural menopause that we shouldn't do anything about it. But we know that women between the ages of 40 and 65 had the biggest bother with desire. So desire goes down over the lifespan, but that section of women, women are the most bothered by it. Why? Is it because it's changing? Is it because they still have the most partnered relationships and as we get older, we don't? I haven't seen a lot of research into why exactly that segment of women is the most bothered, but that's what the research shows. So two top reasons why women stop having sex in menopause, vasomotor symptoms, or what I talked about earlier, hot flashes, insomnia, night sweats, and then the pelvic changes or genital urinary syndrome of menopause. Other reasons, self-image. Another big reason that women stop having sex after menopause is a change in the partner's sexual availability and then boredom. If you don't like the ice cream that you're eating, you don't want to eat it. There's your melted ice cream scenario for you. If you have great ice cream, you're gonna wanna eat it more. 
So if you're just serving up sex that is routine, it's not stimulating to your brain, your brain doesn't seek out boring things. We never seek out boring things, you guys. It must be interesting, it must be novel, we must be engaged intellectually in order to desire it. So we need to step back for a second, Responsive versus uh, Spontaneous Desire. Great book, Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski in talking about what becomes more normal as we age, as we are in long-term committed relationships with the same partner where the sex might be vanilla or melted ice cream. We're gonna get into a much more uh, responsive desire pattern and kind of break away the spontaneous desire as the norm for women as we age in long-term relationships. Desire mismatch. And we just got to normalize this to the point of this is this sh this should be everybody. Maybe not in the beginning of a relationship when everybody's in that fresh, fresh romance, which data shows only lasts between six months and two years. And a lot of data I read, they don't won't even give you the two years. They're like, yeah, 18 months tops is where that like it's novel. I'm hot for you. I, I don't listen to anything else going on in the world because all I care about is this person and my relationship with this person. That actually is documented to be a temporary phase of life. It does not continue as that person is known and now they're in your house all the time and you know everything about them. That romance stage ends. So now you have two people, you're over the romance stage. We have two people who desire two different levels of sex. Totally normal. It is not the low desire person's job to rise to the high desire person's level. I'll repeat that for the people in the back. It is not the low desire person's job to have as much sex as the higher desire person wants. Um, getting back to general urinary symptoms of menopause and why sex hurts and why we avoid sex and why we want less sex if we have untreated menopause symptoms. So things that make the vulva, the clitoris, and the vagina, and the bladder, and the urethra female include a ton of estrogen. And as that estrogen goes down, and for a little bit of it, uh, testosterone plays a role too. Moisture, the elasticity, that rugae, the lactobacillus that keep it uh, acidic and prevent urinary tract infections, all of that is because of estrogen. When we lose our estrogen, and this is a progressive condition over time, meaning as a 70-year-old, this is going to be worse for you than when you're 50. Women will say, oh yeah, but I sailed through menopause. I didn't even have any menopause symptoms. And then they stopped having sex 10 years ago because it was painful. Nobody, they just didn't know that that was a menopause symptom. Again, one of the top two reasons women stop having sex after menopause. So <clears throat> women reporting bothersome vaginal dryness over the menopause transition, the farther away from that last menstrual period, right? So the older you are past menopause, the worse the genital urinary syndrome of menopause gets. It's a gift that keeps on giving uh, and we have to treat it or you will stop having sex because it is painful. We don't want to do, number one, we don't want melted ice cream. Number two, we don't want to do anything that's painful for us. So you can get clitoral adhesions, that skin over the clitoris, the clitoral hood can become fused. Again, it's another sign of atrophy, decreased sensation, decreased arousal, decreased ability to orgasm. Um, other things that can do that for my younger people, birth control in some people, not universally, can kind of act as a hormone blocker and you can get um, atrophy uh, appearances tightness, dryness, pain with sex, um, being on oral birth control. Also breastfeeding is a low estrogen state. It's very safe to put breastfeeding women on vaginal estrogen if they choose to be sexually active uh, immediately postpartum to help with arousal moisture um, and decrease pain, irritation, uh, tearing. So 
What we want to know is we want to know is vaginal estrogen safe? Yes, it is very, very safe. The package insert says it's not safe. The American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology has been trying to change that for over 10 years. And it continues to say this will cause heart disease, stroke, breast cancer, and kill you. So I have to tell women in my office, I'm like, don't read the package insert because it's going to disagree with me because we all know vaginal estrogen is incredibly safe. If you're on vaginal estrogen and somebody checks was to check your estradiol systemic level, it should not be any higher. Um, it should still be postmenopausal range because it's not absorbed systemically. Caveat, when a woman starts vaginal estrogen, specifically more often the cream than the tabs or the rings, they might experience some breast tenderness or some symptoms. It's all temporary. Once that skin gets healthy enough to not just absorb it all, it won't absorb enough. So that's a very transient reason. A lot of women stop their vaginal estrogen because they don't like the breast tenderness because nobody ever told them that that's a temporary thing or they can even lower the dose. Uh, and get through it that way. So risk of cardiovascular disease and cancer were not elevated among postmenopausal women using vaginal estrogens, providing reassurance about the safety of the treatment. So what about looking at uh, menopausal hormone therapy and does it cause breast cancer? So now we're looking at systemic, we're treating the menopause symptoms because menopause symptoms are the number one reason that women stop having sex. If you're exhausted, if you're having hot flashes, if your mood is all up and down, you are not, you're not focused on having sex. So you're not feeling sexy, you're not rested, you, your body feels unwell. Treating menopause symptoms helps women have more sex after menopause. Is it safe? So this isn't a talk specifically looking at this, but we have more and more data saying that hormone therapy, previously called hormone replacement therapy, now we just call it hormone therapy, um, is very, very safe. And we're just starting, two, two decades after the Women's Health Initiative came out, we're just starting to really reassure women and physicians that hormone replacement therapy is safe. Um, a new study just came out in 2021 in the British Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. It's not in the slides. It's literally brand new. It just landed on my desk. What they did is they retrospectively looked at women on estrogen versus estrogen and progesterone um, in a young age, so age 45 to 65 in, in England. And estrogen alone, no increased risk of mortality. The estrogen and progesterone arm, 9% decreased risk of mortality. So good news. Number one, it might, uh, might actually help you live more than if you're not on it, if you're on combined. And number two, if you're just on estrogen alone, um, it at least isn't causing a worse mortality uh, in, a, in a big, big study. So again, if we don't know this, if you're on systemic estrogen and you have an intact uterus, you need a progesterone to protect the uterine lining from hyperproliferation from the estrogen. So whether that's oral, whether that's an IUD, um, those are both reasonable options. But now we have that new study showing that estrogen plus progesterone decreased 9% uh, mortality risk. So that's good. FDA approved indications for hormones, vasomotor symptoms, prevention of bone loss, premature hypoestrogenism. So that means really, really young women. Um, what we know is women less than the age of 45 who either have surgical menopause or early menopause, their mortality is greater if they are not given hormone supplementation. Incredibly important for young women to be on hormones. And then genital urinary symptoms of menopause. 
So systemic hormones, um, again, treating hormones to help, uh, treating systemic symptoms to help your sex life. There is data that say sex drive goes up. There is data to say it doesn't matter. But what we know is women who feel better um, tend to have, be more sexually active. So does estrogen improve desire specifically? We have mixed studies. That's good news because that doesn't mean we just give everybody estrogen and say like, I don't understand why you're having a crappy sex life. It's supposed to work. Like sexuality is nuanced. It involves relationship and what society's told you and your body image and your communication skills and your ability to understand where orgasm comes from in the woman. So sexuality is very nuanced. I can't just throw you on estrogen and give you a happy sex life. If that was how easy it was, all 30 year olds would be having fantastic sex lives because their estrogen's fine, but they don't. So mixed studies on if hormones are uh, healthy, happy for sex drive or not. Um, but I think that mixed studies are actually a good news in this, in this circumstance. So benefits of hormones, relieve the vasomotor symptom, improve the genital urinary syndromes of menopause or genital urinary syndrome disease, decrease depression and anxiety, decrease joint pain, improves your bone density. We all, I, this is what I tell women when they're like, I don't have any menopause symptoms, but I'm thinking maybe it, it might help their desire. And then their bones is like, how do you want to be living when you're 75, right? And the rate of hip fracture and hospitalizations and needing to go to nursing homes. There's actually an interesting study looking at the rate of hip fracture in America after we pulled all women off their systemic hormones around 2002 because of the Women's Health Initiative scare. You just see the risk of osteoporosis and hip fractures skyrocket in our country. So prevention of osteoporosis. Things we don't think about because we can't feel bone loss. Most people don't get osteoporosis when they're 55, right? But treating ourselves well because we want to be well when we're 75. Other potential benefits of hormone replacement is improved sleep, improved desire. We, all, we think that the transdermal estrogen, so the patches, the pills, uh, because it doesn't have first pass metabolism through the liver, which increases your sex hormone binding globulin, which can then bind testosterone and estrogen. Um, so the transdermal is going to avoid first pass metabolism. So we think that's better for desire. And then fewer wrinkles, it's great for your hair, nails, and skin which is, you know, if you want a vanity reason for to be on hormones. Um, and then reduce risk of cardiovascular disease if started in patients younger than 60 or within 10 years of menopause. If you haven't started on hormones and now you're 63, now you're 70, the risk of starting on hormones actually is probably is not as beneficial or the risks outweigh the benefits, basically, the older you get. If you're going to be on hormones, start on them early because you don't suffer the damage of low estrogen and then throw hormones on those kind of already changing cardiovascular uh, systems. So that's the theory. That's why the recommendation is for hormone therapy to start it as young after menopause as possible because the risks go up afterwards. Vaginal estrogen therapy, again, vaginal estrogen therapy, different than systemic, but it's local therapy. It won't help your hot flashes. It won't help your sleep. It helps decrease stress incontinence, helps decrease recurrent UTIs. You don't need progesterone if you're just on vaginal estrogen. You don't need to protect your uterus because, again, it's not systemic. Um, and then the non-estrogen options, osfemifeme, uh, which is, um, let's see if I can remember off the top of my head the brand name for that. I'm struggling. And osfema, yeah, is what it's called. And then intravaginal DHEA or intrarosa. 
also works. It works by converting into testosterone and estrogen. But I always think of sunscreen and seatbelts when I talk about vaginal estrogen because it's preventative, right? And if you stop wearing sunscreen and seatbelts, it's not going to work for you. So I always tell people, if you're going to be on vaginal estrogen, if you stop it, because they'll be like, Dr. Hell, I had one lady, she stopped it because she only got one UTI after she'd been on it. So she stopped it because she thought she didn't need it anymore. It was like, no, 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 it's actually helping you not have recurrent UTIs, you have to, but you have to stay on it to get those effects. So what about testosterone and desire and sexuality in postmenopausal women? We don't have much data to say that you should or can be on testosterone for other reasons. Desire really is the reason to be on it, but there's no FDA approved reason for women to be on testosterone postmenopause yet at this point. Um, but there is data using it for hypoactive sexual desire disorder. Um, lots of studies to the point that Ishwish and all of the important societies say that being on testosterone to help with sex drive, sex uh, sex life, interest in sex is quite, can be quite helpful and there are guidelines on how to do it. So, hypoactive sexual desire disorder, male equivalent of this is low libido, defined um, by the lack of motivation for sexual activity as manifested by decreased spontaneous desire, decreased responsive desire, and decreased uh, initiation or participation in sexual activity. So, there are two FDA-approved medications for hypoactive sexual desire disorder in the premenopausal woman. They actually divvied that up, so not approved for postmenopausal. Postmenopausal women get hormones, testosterone, estrogen, which, which are not FDA-approved for low desire, but that's what we have and we know they work. Premenopausal, FDA-approved, is we have filbanserin um, and bremelanotide. So we have Addy and Addy is the filbanserin and then bremelanotide is doo -doo -doo -doo. i'm blanking but that's the injection one um i don't use them too much they work great in right in the right person the problem is we don't know who the right person is i think so many women have to really learn about their sexuality communication responsive versus spontaneous desire, the role of the clitoris, and then we can try. But certainly there is a biological role for increasing dopamine, uh, and that's how the oral pill Addy works. It increases dopamine, decreases serotonin. Increased dopamine, increased uh, seeking behavior, seeking out rewarding behavior like sexuality. Um, in the women it does work in, they love it. Uh, it does increase sexually satisfying events by a very small amount in the research because they had to research that because it's much harder to quantitate desire, right? But the medications for desire not to increase the amount of sexually satisfying events. But they kind of used it as a proxy of like, if you're desiring sex more, you might be having more of it. Um, so FDA approved for hypoactive sexual desire disorder in premenopausal women. You still might not get insurance to cover it because a lot of insurances don't cover sexual function meds, whether that's Viagra or whether that's an oral low desire med for a woman. So surgical menopause, was there a difference in desire when you looked at that? What we know from some studies, surgical menopause did not affect female sexual performance differently from natural menopause with the exception of vaginal lubrication. What you might notice with a surgical menopause woman is her drop in hormones is immediate. She doesn't have that up and down and up and down and gradual. It's much more immediate. Uh, it can be a very devastating feeling for them if they're not supported on hormones, if they can be on hormones. 
but there is no difference as far as sexual function besides vaginal lubrication between surgical and natural menopause. So again, the two top two reasons that women stop having uh, sex after menopause, vasomotor symptoms and the change in the partner's ability or their sexual function. So also pelvic changes, genital urinary symptoms of menopause, self-image, and then boredom. If it's just the same old, same old, flavorless melted ice cream, or if it's painful, you're not going to want it. So really important to, to work that up. Uh, and then desire. Remember that spontaneous desire is a unicorn. It's what Hollywood sells us. It's what music sells us. It's what we have idealized is I just want to desire desiring all the time. But remember, desire is a thought about your your partner. It's a result that you get from good sex. It's a feeling. It's not a product to be purchased. Your thoughts about sex matter and the sex that you're having, the quality of that sexual interaction with you and your partner is what hap what uh, what matters. One thing to really bring, bring up, I think, for a lot of people is we talk about playful touching in a non-sexual manner, but just being connected with your partner throughout the day, cuddling at night, kissing, hugging, touching, just being close, sitting on the couch, um, having time one-on-one -on -one to, to create that bond, we know is incredibly important for great sex for people going forward. There's this um, amazing book called Magnificent Sex by Peggy Kleinpatz. And I think the fascinating thing, she researches all these kind of self-proclaimed magnificent lovers and who have magnificent sex. It's not people who think they give good love to other people, it's people who say, yeah, I have good sex. Not once do they ever talk about desire being a key ingredient. It's intention, it's purposefulness, it's connection, it's sensuality, it's the quality of the interaction. It's never, oh, well, I just have great sex because I have spontaneous desire. Desire is not actually a key when you, when you study those magnificent sex people. So I think we all have something to learn from them. So I love you guys so much. Thanks for letting me join you and so happy to be part of sharing this information with you. So thanks for having me. And until next time, remember you are not broken and your partner is not broken. Love you guys.